Well, we have been singing this morning about the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did for us when he died at the cross of Calvary, how he paid the debt of our sin and took the punishment that we deserve. There has come a point, probably in the lives of most of you here today, I would love to say all of you, but I don't know. But for most of us, there came a point in our lives when we realized that as sinners, we needed a Savior, we needed someone who would pay the penalty of our sins so that we would not do that ourselves. And that is, those are the only two options. Either someone else takes the penalty or, uh, or we take it. And for us, it's an eternity in hell, ultimately the lake of fire. You came to the point where you realized that Jesus was the Savior and you put your faith and trust in him. And at that moment, the Lord did some wonderful things for you. He forgave your sins, and he granted you the gift of eternal life. And there were many other things that took place as well, some of which we will talk about this morning. But at that point, or maybe shortly thereafter, a realization began to settle in. And the realization was that, well, now as a follower of Christ, my desire is to glorify him and to please him. And depending on the time of life in which you accepted Christ as your Savior, you may have been somewhat frightened by the prospects of what is involved now in trying to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. You completely understand that your good works do not enhance your salvation. That was all cared for perfectly in the person of Christ. But now, there's this desire to live consistently with who you are in Christ. You want to reflect the truth of Christ clearly through your lives. You want to demonstrate that you are truly a child of God. But you know that previously, there were elements of your life that just were not right before God. You knew that. That was part of how you you understood that you were a sinner. And now the question is, how in the world am I going to live a life that will please God and be consistent with who I am in Christ? Well, there's now this new desire that you have to please him. Uh, we, we would identify it as a new nature, and the very fact that you're having that struggle is, is really a good indicator that there has been a rebirth. There has been salvation that has taken place. But now the strength, the resolve, the commitment, the willingness to live each day in such a way that the Lord is glorified. How do I do that? When the trials of life come, how in the world am I going to face those trials? When, when temptation comes my way, especially the temptations that perhaps previously I had been giving into, and they come my way again because they're going to come. How am I going to handle this? Well, today we are brought to a place where we have answers for that. And I had mentioned to you a number of weeks ago that from time to time we would answer questions that would be fielded from you as a congregation. And that is still wide open. I I hope if you have questions that you will feel free to write them out, drop them in the offering plate, put them in the benevolence box, give them to me, whatever the case might be. And by the grace of God, we'll, we'll try to do our best to answer those questions. Today we're going to. 
The first question that I received is the one that you see recorded for you on the screen. And it was this. Explain who the Holy Spirit is, what he does. And so what we're going to do today is to try to accomplish that. And um, let me back up. We're, we're trying to, to deal with this in a way that is going to be right. You all know we're... I'm still trying to learn how to do this. You know what? I'm not sure that I'm ever going to get past this. <laughs> this, this may be it. But anyway, we're, we're going to do our best to, to try to explain this. Who is the Holy Spirit and, and what does he do? If we were going to give a formal definition, and in your notes, I would hope that you would be writing things down today. You know, here, here's one of the struggles today. The question itself today lends itself for an instructional period that would be an awful lot like a classroom. And it would be probably on a college, Bible college, or possibly even a a seminary level where we're going to be sharing some of that information. And, And you say, well, I didn't come for that. I came to hear a sermon. Well, I'll try to make it sermonic as we do this. But the truth is, it's going to be something that is to give you information that by the grace of God will give you great confidence in what God has provided to help you through the issues of life that you face after you've trusted Christ as your Savior. And I just want you to be aware of this. I paid a lot of money to learn this. And you're getting it for free so to speak. Anyway, I just want you to know that as we start this, I hope that this will clarify in your thinking and that you will do your part, that you will apply the truths that you learn and you will appropriate to your life that which I cannot do. You have to do it. And so let's take a look at this. Who is the Holy Spirit? Most of us who have been raised in a Christian tradition would have a fair understanding of who he is. He is a person who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. Now that's the formal definition, but to try to understand exactly what it means for us to be able to grasp Uh, what's involved with that, we are talking about a concept that is probably beyond our human capability to grasp. And yet it's one that we embrace because it is clearly identified for us in the scriptures. There is one God. One eternal God. But that one God makes himself manifest in three distinct personalities. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To try to bring together in our thinking how three can be one and one can be three is, is it's something that is probably beyond us to fully grasp. But I will tell you this, though I can't grasp it, I do believe it. Because all the evidence of Scripture is that the one God is manifest, he is shown, he is active in three distinct persons. And within that Godhead, there are different functions that each person of the Godhead perform. 
We, we are clear, and I trust that we are, on what God the Father did in not only the creation, but in the way he treats his children today. It's why we call him the Father. We are clear on what God the Son has done, not only in his work at creation, but also in his redemptive work at the cross of Calvary, in his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. But now let's take a look at the work and the identity of the Holy Spirit. We've indicated by definition that he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. We have scripture that helps us understand that. And I'm just going to make one quick reference to one passage here. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, uh, cleanse your conscience from dead works, and to serve the living God. That passage tells us something very specific about the Holy Spirit. He is eternal. Now, if you're eternal, you've never had a beginning. And if you've never had a beginning, there's only one identity that can characterize who you are. And that is, you are God. The Father was never created, the Son was never created, and the Holy Spirit was never created. Because within the eternal Godhead, these three persons have existed from all eternity past. But now, to demonstrate that that is true, and to fully grasp an understanding that God the Holy Spirit is truly co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, then we have to be able to look at him and we have to see within him the same qualities of being, the same traits, the same nature, the same attributes, the same characteristics that would be completely in line with the Father and the Son. And the first one we would look at deals with his omniscience. What is it that the Holy Spirit knows? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? All right, now, let me just stop here. How do, how do you know how I feel? How do, you, how do I know how you feel? Well, we identify with each other because we have the spirit of man within us. And I can understand when you are going through times of great joy, and and I understand how that feels because I've had times of great joy and and times of sorrow, and I've had times of sorrow, and vice versa. And, And we understand each other because we think relatively the same. Now, there are certainly differences in there, but there are certain characteristics of our personality that never are, are different from one person to another. There are going to be elements within us that we fully grasp. That's how it is with the Spirit of God. What does the Bible teach us about him? The Bible says this, even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So what is it that the Holy Spirit knows? He knows everything God knows. How close do you and I come to that? I've been been watching um, a program on the the History Channel, uh, and it's, it's terrible as far as its evolutionary theories are concerned, but it is really interesting when you consider the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And they're talking about uh, the universe and the incredible 
uh, creation that has been placed out there and and the scientists are trying to figure things out and they're they're doing a good job in figuring out a lot of the details concerning the universe they just really mess it up when they come to try to understand the cause of the universe having said that what an incredible creation god has brought into being and the spirit of god knows all about that just as much as the Father knows and just as the Son knows because the Spirit of God is God and he fully understands the mind of God, something which you and I will never be able to fully grasp, but we will spend all eternity knowing more and more and more and more. That's why eternity is not going to be boring. It's going to be great. Having said that, let me move on to the next area. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. What do we mean by that? It means he is everywhere present. He is, here's another cool word, ubiquitous. He's there all, he, he's everywhere. You, you cannot go anywhere, but he is there. What a great reality to understand that I can never drift away from the Spirit's presence. By the way, that's also scary. Because I can't go anywhere but He's already there, and he knows me, and he's watching, and he's observing. And so we read in the scriptures what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 139. I'm going to have to say this in, in the, uh, the, the King James in which I memorized this because the wording's too small on the screen up there that I'm reading from. How about the, uh, I'm going to say it the way I know it. Wherewithal shall a young... No, that's not it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Where shall I go from thy presence? I'm going to read it. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. That was written for the purpose of comfort. Because when I need that which the Holy Spirit provides, He will always be there to do it. I will never be apart from Him. I will never be at any place where He does not give me the grace that I need, that He does not give me the strength that I need, that He does not give the wisdom that I need, because He is there. The other elements related to Him would include his truth. Pardon me, his omnipotence, before we get to truth. He has unlimited power. And we, we see this as we look at the creation itself. And, and Genesis 1-2 tells us about how the Spirit of God was brooding, is the terminology, over the face of the deep that God the Son called into being in alignment with the plan of God the Father, so that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the creation. And how is the order being brought to all of this with the creation of the dry land, the creation of the seas? Here is the Spirit of God brooding over the earth, bringing the order. As a matter of fact, when we turn to the book of Job, and I don't have this verse listed for you, there's actually several different verses that deal with this. The book of Job, which actually predates Moses' writing of the book of Genesis, he tells us that it was the Spirit of God who, or, uh, who adorned the creation. 
He adorned it. He put beauty in it. He put order in it. Why is it that scientists can look at things and and determine that by the refraction of light, whether it's red light, you can tell the speed of an object that's going away from you. How is it that they can determine that gravitational pulls can even bend light to create a variety of different spectacles in the heavens? How is it that all of that can be? It's because there is a God in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who not only called into being all that exists, but then adorned it and put it in order. This is all part of the spirit of God's work. He is identified as the spirit of truth. This is he who comes by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and the blood. And he is the spirit who bears, and pardon me, and it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. Is that important to you? Can you imagine if we had a God who did not tell the truth? We would have no hope. We would be, we would be living in absolute fear of everything that may happen in the future. We'd have no assurance that there is a heaven that is a delight that there is a hell that is a place of suffering. We would have no understanding that these things exist even though they would be declared to us because he couldn't be trusted. But because he's the spirit of truth, all that he has revealed is exactly the way it's going to be. He is holy. And and this almost goes without saying because the, the reference to him is a holy spirit. And, and I hope you all are getting this. He is not a force. He is not a power. He is a person who is totally separate from anything inconsistent with the, with the character and the nature of God. Absolutely pure. Absolutely perfect. He is the Holy Spirit. He is also wise. He has unlimited wisdom. What does he know? As the scriptures tell us, he has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or, who has counsel, or as his counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The prophet Isaiah is talking about the, about the person of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, You and I lack wisdom. But we have a spirit dwelling within us, and we'll talk about that shortly, who is absolutely wise and can determine the direction we should go at every moment of every day as we draw upon him. He is wise. So what am I seeing here? I'm seeing a pattern of the same qualities that we see in God the Father and God the Son. We find out this one, which is extremely important. He is a spirit of life. When we talk about the Spirit of God, we're talking about life. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And so because of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the life that I can appropriate through faith in Jesus Christ becomes a reality within my being. He implants life in me, an eternal life. 
which is not only a duration, but it is a quality to be lived every day. The spirit of life. Well, uh, there's more that we could say. But I think that this gives you enough information to understand this. When we are talking about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about a person who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. But the question didn't stop there. It didn't say, who is the Holy Spirit, and stop. It also asked this question, what does he do? What are his works? And we would have to go back in time to determine some of the things that the Spirit of God has been involved in. We've already touched on one of those, and one involves creation. He was the one brooding over the earth at the time of creation. He's the one who adorned the heavens and all that exists. And he is the one whose hand moved in such a way as to bring the order and the complexity of the creation itself into an orderly being so that the laws that have been established by God are laws that only he has the capability to break. You and I do not. And so he was involved in creation. He was involved in mankind. And, and here's something that, that we need to kind of um, adjust to. The Spirit of God worked in a different way prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ than he works today. Even though some of the terminology seems the same, we're told that he was in people. Now, we're going to learn that he is in people today, but he was in people in a different way in the Old Testament time. You remember, there was a prayer that was offered by David that is a prayer that you and I do not need to offer. There, there are times that we look at the Scriptures and we say, now there's a prayer that I want to pray, and, and it's good. It's good to be able to pray prayers that the Scriptures uh, teach us. But there is a prayer that David prayed that needed that needs not to be prayed by you and me today. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What David had seen was what had happened to Saul, his predecessor. Saul had been enabled by the Spirit of God to be the king of Israel, but Saul hardened his heart to the things of God and as a result rebelled against the directions that God had given and the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God was taken away from him and as a result of that, his functioning as the king failed. Not only did it fail for him physically, but it failed spiritually before God. David knew that had happened. Now, when David offered that prayer, take not your Holy Spirit from me, that was after his sin with Bathsheba. And he was now afraid that the Spirit of God would depart from him. But because he had a broken and a contrite heart, he was given the presence of the Holy Spirit until the day that he died. That was not the common experience of all men. In some cases, he came upon individuals. And there were times when there were special projects that were to be done, such as the building of the the temple. And God would come upon individuals and give them capabilities to perform their tasks that were above and beyond the normal human capabilities. He 
filled some people. There were times in which he took control of their lives and manifested his purpose through their lives because he was in control. And then we're told this, that he restrained people. If it hadn't been for the restraining of the Holy Spirit in the early years of creation, man would have just gone completely to uh, the, the evil inclinations of his heart, and eventually the Spirit of God began to withdraw his process of restraint, and the whole creation had to be destroyed except for Noah and for his family. And so those were things that he did in Old Testament times, but he also was involved for us today. He was involved in bringing revelation. We're told that the Spirit of God came upon individuals who were carried along by him so that the words that they wrote in the Scriptures were exactly the words that God intended for us to have. He didn't dictate although I will say there were occasions in which he did, but that was not the normal practice. The normal practice was to work in such a way. The the way the scripture says it is a beautiful way. The prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were, this word moved, very important, as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does this imply? It means that their personalities continued to come through their writing. The experiences of their lives could be reflected, but accurately through what they wrote. Their research could be accurate so that what they wrote was genuinely true. And here is the Spirit of God carrying them so that the product of what they write is the inspired Word of God. The men were not inspired. The Scriptures were inspired. The men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so he saw to it that we would have a revelation of our God that is complete and is totally all we need for the lives that we live today. And then, of course, we know that the Holy Spirit of God was also involved in the conception and the birth of Christ. Christ was virgin-born. Mary conceived, but not in the normal way. But the Holy Spirit of God came upon her, and she conceived and bore a son, and they called his name Jesus. And so there are a number of different areas in which the Spirit of God worked in the past. But now we come down to this. And this is where for us, this becomes extremely important in helping us live our lives the way the Lord intended. Do you remember the Lord said to his disciples, if, if I don't go, if I don't leave, then the Holy Spirit will not come. There is a plan that the Father had established from eternity past that made this determination when Christ ascends to heaven and leaves his disciples, those who embraced him, who followed him, who continued faithful to him, they will not be left alone. They will not be on their own. I will send them another helper a comforter, a guide, a teacher who will be with them forever. And so when Christ ascended into heaven on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came in a very special manifestation 
descending in the appearance of flames of fire, doves coming down upon the disciples, giving them the capability to speak languages they had never learned so that all of these people from all of the different areas of the world that had come together could now hear the truth of what Jesus Christ had done in their own tongue. Which, by the way, that's what tongues are. Not gibberish. Tongues are languages. And these people could understand what it was that Christ had done. And the Bible tells us that many of them made a decision to embrace Christ as their Savior on that day. And in the days that followed, the Spirit of God continued His work. And now He is here today. And what is it that He does? It is the Spirit of God who convicts. He bring, Did I... The work of the Holy Spirit includes. Oh, conviction of the lost. Okay. The, the passage of Scripture is in John chapter 16. And here is a very clear understanding of what the Lord sent the Spirit of God to do in unbelievers' lives. Convict them. The word convict simply means to convince the mind of a reality. To convict the minds of unbelievers of sin of righteousness, and of judgment. To, to summarize it, the sin is not murder. It's not adultery. It's not thievery. Those are sins that reflect the condition of the fallen heart that is part of man's natural being, born as sinners born apart from the life of God, born with a a sinful nature. But the Spirit of God says the greatest sin is for you to call God a liar. It's the sin of unbelief. Because God the Father said of His Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And the conviction that the Spirit of God brings is a conviction that we have not embraced Christ in the reality and in the truth of who He is, and now it is necessary for us to do that. And if we don't, the reality of sin is that we have become, by virtue of our very being and our identification with Adam as our father, we have become sinners who do not have the life of God and will remain separated from him for all eternity. And so now there has to be a realization of that righteousness that ultimately leads to judgment where Satan is judged and you will be judged along with him if you do not put your trust in Christ as your Savior. You remember that at the final judgment, the Bible tells us that hell gives up the dead, the grave gives up the dead, and and people are judged according to their works to show that they were truly sinners, but those whose names were not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life were cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire had been developed, it had been created for Satan and his angels, and now those who have rejected the truth of God's word, have rejected Christ, will be thrown into the lake of fire with them. The Spirit of God is the one who goes to work to help you understand you need a Savior. And there's not a person in this room who knows Jesus Christ as Savior, who did not come to a place where you were able to say, I know I'm a sinner, I know I need a Savior, without Jesus Christ I am lost, I believe that He died for my sins, and that He rose again. 
That was the work of the Spirit of God. By the way, you didn't do it. He did it. He did it. Because none of us seek after God. Do you know what that means when we stand before the Lord? You deserve all the praise. You deserve all the glory. There was nothing in me that deserves what you have given me in Christ. So the Spirit of God is the one who convinces the mind of that. He is the one who regenerates. He brings life. He puts a new nature within individuals. He's the one who introduces not only this new nature, but he also renews our minds. He is the one who uh, washes us. Uh, Larry was talking a little while ago about how we are washed. We are cleansed. The sin that, that is part of our very being, part of our nature, has been totally cleansed through the blood of Christ, and it is the Spirit of God who appropriates to us the benefits of that shed blood of Jesus Christ. He tells us more. He is the one who indwells every believer. Don't you know that the Spirit of God lives within you? If you look at the context of this, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is some of you have been hooking up with prostitutes. He doesn't beat around the bush. What are you doing? Don't you know you belong to God? That is, if you really do. Maybe you don't. He says, how, how can you take someone who's in who the, the Spirit of God dwells and, and hook them up with somebody else that's not your mate, your wife, or your husband? of the opposite gender. He says, don't you know that the Spirit of God lives right inside of you? So now we have a resource living within us that can help us do everything we're supposed to do that honors and glorifies the Lord. He baptizes the believer, and that is not a subsequent act to salvation. The Bible tells us by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. That means that at the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God placed you in Christ. What does that mean to you and me? It means it's the only way we're going to get into heaven. That's it. If you don't stand before the judgment, clothed completely, immersed into the body of Christ, not by baptism of water, but baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is an event that takes place at the moment you trust Christ, and that is why it is inclusive. By one Spirit are we all, all believers, baptized, placed into the body of Christ, so that in Christ we are accepted by the Father completely accepted in the beloved. And if you're not in Christ, you will never be accepted by the Father. You and I are not good enough to stand before the Father, but when we come clothed in Christ, come on home. He baptizes. He can fill the believer, which is the process of taking complete control of an individual's life. So that the words we speak are words that reflect the kindness and the love and the graciousness of our God. 
That the places we go are the places that our Savior would go. That the things that we do are things that are consistent with the standing that we have in Christ. And He is the one who controls those elements. Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we can be filled. He teaches us. You know what? Truth of the matter is, I can't teach you a thing. I can't teach you anything. That's kind of a humbling thing for a person that teaches and preaches. All I can do is present information. But if it's ever going to make it to here, if it's ever going to become part of who you are, the Spirit of God has to be the one who teaches you. He's it. I can't do it. I can just I can throw out information. You know, just spread it out like seeds. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Now the question is, Does the Spirit of God take it and apply it to your heart? That depends on whether or not you are teachable. (laughs) There are some people who say, I don't get anything out of the sermons. Thankfully, none of those people are here anymore. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There are probably some of you who walk out of here today and say, I didn't get anything out of it. Then you know what? That's not my failure. That's your failure. To be in tune with the Spirit of God because this is His Word. Just thought I'd throw that out to you. He's the one that teaches. He will guide. If you lack wisdom, ask of the Lord, and he will give you liberally, and he will guide your path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. He'll guide. And then he assures. Some people say, well, how do you know if you're saved? The Bible tells us very clearly that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And if in your heart there is not that settled assurance, there is not that testimony of the Spirit of God that's saying, yes, you you belong to to us, (laughs) us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're, you're, You're in Christ. If that's not there, then probably you need to check yourself out. I think there are times we just assume people are saved. And maybe they're not. People sitting in this auditorium. And maybe you're not. I do believe that there are times that there can be crises that come into a life where a person says, well, I I really have trusted Christ the best I know how, but I just don't feel like it. Then you take God at his word. He that has a son has life. Does God lie? No. So if you have the Son, you have life. But for the most part, the testimony of the Spirit will be there. And then, finally, the Spirit of God prays for us. And this, to me, is one of the great things that the Spirit of God does for us. When I pray, my prayers may not be the will of God. I am very selfish. There are things I would really like for the Lord to do in my life. I'd like for Him to give me the body of a 22-year-old. And he doesn't do that. And it just, it's, what? It still works. You got to work for it? (laughs) The beach is that way. (laughs) 
listen, there, there are things that I would ask for selfishly, and generally it falls into the realm of the material things and health and things like that. Listen, God never promised those things to us in this life. He did promise that we will all be cured of all of our diseases, but maybe not here. It may be there, but, it's, but I'm going to be cured. And one day I'm going to have this great body that doesn't break down, and some of you are too. Hopefully all of you will. And we'll be able to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of heaven with complete uh, vigor and with strength. And we won't have the limitations that we have. There'll be no death. There'll be no crying. There'll be no disease. Why? Because these are the things that the Lord has planned for us. And right now, I want them now. And so when I pray, the Spirit says, Father, Brian's prayers are really out of line here. And so let me, let me twist this prayer to your will because everything the Spirit of God places before the Father is the will of the Father so that now the will of the Father can come back to me as I yield myself and say, in the middle of my prayers, I say, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And then it's the best. Now, I've told you all of that, and I I was really trying to do this to save time because of our gathering around the Lord's table, but I do need to tell you one more thing about the Spirit of God, and this should help clarify a number of things in our thinking. The Spirit of God does not draw attention to himself. His purpose is to glorify Christ. He directs people to Christ. He declares the truth of Christ. He glorifies Christ. That's why today, one of the problems that I have with those who place so much emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit being something that would be outward is that it fails to do exactly what the Bible tells us the Spirit of God came to do, which is to glorify Christ. So that when we gather around the elements of the Lord's table, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit in an inappropriate way, we are allowing the Spirit of God to say to us, once again, I want you to remember what Christ did for you at the cross of Calvary. I want you to remember that it was God the Son who became a man, took upon himself the form of sinful flesh, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He is the one who suffered and bled and died. And he is the one who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason is, he carried your sin. I'll appropriate the benefits of that, but he's the one who carried your sin. And unless you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the benefits of what he accomplished at the cross of Calvary will be to no avail to you. And so he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And even though our emphasis this morning was teaching about the Spirit of God, we always have to come down to the final conclusion. His work today is to glorify the Son, to honor the Son, to draw people to the Son, because only Jesus Christ himself is worthy. Father, I thank you that your word has given us such clarity concerning your work through the Holy Spirit. I thank you for him. I thank you for his very nature. I thank you 
for his being. I thank you for his work. And I thank you that as we learn and understand him better, we begin to realize that the goal and the purpose and the attention of our lives need to be drawn to the Savior. Father, as we remember him today, I pray that you would be glorified and that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.